0: Welcome to the Homeschool Works podcast, the show where we break down the research from the fields of neuroscience, psychology, and education to give you tangible takeaways to power your homeschool. I'm Katherine Gomes, a second generation homeschooler and author of Apologia's Exploring Creation with Mathematics program, and I'm joined by my mom, Dr. Deborah Bell, an author, speaker, educational psychologist, and homeschool guru. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, I give an overview of all the math your child needs to learn K through 12 and highlight what's most important at each level. My mom and I talk about memorizing math facts and practicing skills, updating you on the best way to do it. Finally, we end by giving some suggestions on how to make math fun. Hey,
1: everybody. I started AIM Academy in 2011 and today we offer more than 150 online classes for homeschool students 4th through 12th grade. Our approach to teaching online classes is research-driven. Our goal? Your child's success, measured by academic achievement, increased interest in learning and personal satisfaction in reaching his or her goals. If you'd like to know more you can check out AIM Academy at DeborahBell.com. Kate, I'm so excited to continue our conversation this week about teaching math in a homeschool context, uh, where I think I'd like to start that would be helpful for me and for parents is can you just give us an overview of the scope of math that kids need to learn before they go to college? Like just start, you know, K through 12. What's the order in which we are going to be covering math topics with our kids?
0: It's been so helpful for me that I taught high school. And so then when I'm teaching elementary or writing elementary, it really helps keep things in focus. So I think knowing the whole scope, even just on a general sense, is really helpful as a parent. So I'll start with elementary Keep in mind that in elementary mathematics, the main thing we're learning how to do are for the four basic math operations. Um, first, with integers or whole numbers, and then with fractions, decimals, and percentages. So you know the four operations: addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And you start by learning how to add and subtract numbers, <laughs> and then you work up from there.
1: And then what happens next? I mean, so. Basically, I think that's arithmetic, right? When the kids have all of they're working with real numbers and they're right. manipulating those real numbers to solve real-world problems like uh length and volume. Um what happens yeah, next? You know, how does it get more complicated?
0: Yeah, well, first in elementary we don't have variables. So that's kind of like the big difference and after Wait, elementary. I got to stop you there. Like what's a variable? Okay, so a variable is when we use a letter to represent an unknown amount. And that comes in in middle school or in the middle level. But in elementary, we want to make sure kids are very comfortable and fluent with those operations with both whole numbers and like the fractions, decimals and percents I talked about so that that doesn't hold them up in the future. And I've kind of chunked it. I mean, different programs do it different ways, but the way I did it in Apology of Math is first and second grade is addition and subtraction. And by the end of second grade, kids should know all their addition and subtraction facts within 20. Third and fourth is multiplication and division. Of course, you're learning other things, but the, the big theme is multiplication and division. And then we take fifth and sixth to really master fractions, decimals, and percentages, and not just each of those in isolation, but e- being able to convert and move from one form to another. If kids can really come out of the end of 6th grade very comfortable with those representations, they will succeed. So, well, in the higher level math because there's it's so many times, you know, even in high school math that it's the fraction that confuses a kid, not the x squared, which can be surprising, but that's what I've seen when I'm working with kids.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to insert here, too, because I remember this. You started tutoring in high school. You started tutoring your peers, and then you've been teaching math pretty much ever since high school. And something you've mentioned to me time and time again when you're working with algebra and geometry students over the summer because they needed to catch up or they had had a bad p- bad school year you told me that it's almost always arithmetic, that they never mastered their math facts. And that's what you're talking about here, right? Like That's kind of the big goal of elementary math is to master manipulating real numbers before they move into higher level math, right?
0: Yes, I mean, there's common pitfalls. And one of the most common pitfalls are fractions, or you know even decimals, um, and you're right. I'm I work now. I'm teaching SAT math prep. I've been doing that for over a decade, and on the non-calculator section of the test, a lot of kids struggle not with the high school level concept, but that they have to add a, add two fractions with unlike denominators or something like that they're not comfortable, they're not confident, and then it kind of throws them off in the future. So yes, that's the main goal in elementary is to be really confident in it and fluent so quick. And you you know you get there with practice, you're not gonna start out quick, but you want to come out of elementary where that's not going to slow you down and you can focus on the more complex concepts that are coming and not those operations.
1: Good. All right. Well, let's move on. So what happens next? Kind of the middle school years, what then is the focus of that math?
0: Yeah. So in middle school, again, as I was laying this out, I kept thinking, well, it kind of, it will vary a little bit. So keep in mind, just um, as you're listening, think of it as a progression and your kid might move through it slightly different paces. But in middle school, um, one goal is to start algebra if you can. Algebra one in eighth grade is a great idea. You are gonna to continue to be working with fractions, decimals, and percentages because um, the percentages in particular can be a lot more complicated or simple depending on how the problems are worded. So most kids continue to practice that in a middle school math book. And then another really key idea that comes in in middle school is positive and negative numbers. So just like I mentioned the fractions, This is another big pitfall. So even I can tell you problems like 10 take away 17 or 10 minus 17. This is a big issue for lots of kids. And I would see kids in high school work through maybe a 10 step problem and get it wrong on that last step, 10 take away 17. And they would say seven or what, and they didn't have a real true grasp of what makes something positive and what makes it negative. So Lots of work with number lines and um, showing things pictorially. And I'd even have, when I taught middle school, kids walking on number lines to act out. So that's just really essential. And any time you put into that, you're not going to regret it. It's going to really reap a lot of benefits. And then algebra. So algebra is when we introduce a variable. You've probably been doing some algebraic thinking or thinking about unknown quantities before this. But now we're going to start representing what we don't know with a letter, a lot of times it's X, just because they chose X. It can really be any letter. So this is where it it gets pretty abstract, and you want to make sure you build up to this well, and that um, you're spending lots of time developing this idea so that kids can really master it and not get lost. Yeah,
1: one thing that I like to tell parents is that when you turn, you start doing algebra and higher level math, it really is critical that kids have are in early adolescence that they are starting to have that cognitive growth spurt that comes at the beginning of puberty and why that's important is because those areas of the brain that are expanding in earliest adolescence are related to abstract thinking so just I mean I I can remember for myself really struggling in algebra and needing to get extra tutoring when I was in high school and one of my Uh, misconceptions was that it always had to be an X, that somehow the letter Mm -hmm. X was meant something. And so when there suddenly was a Z or a Y or a U, I was just completely flummoxed by, well, what does that mean? Now I'm solving for
0: you. What what is that? Yeah, but even that is another common pitfall. I mean, a lot of us get confused by that. For me, when I went to college, I got really thrown by the use of Greek letters. I didn't recognize them. I didn't know them. And actually, someone sitting next to me who was in a sorority had to break it down for me just because that sometimes when you're only one like one piece of information off, it's then you don't understand anything, because maybe when you're in your math class, as soon as they put a different letter, you got confused, then you weren't able to follow the rest of the lesson. So it can be a, a small missing link, but then we suddenly, we miss that step, and that's how kids get lost in their math class.
1: Can we take a little bunny trail here? Is sort of learning math similar to learning a foreign language? Since you you've learned both, I'm just wondering, is there similarity between like when you were learning French and kids learning math? Being when you said you're you were just one piece of information short.
0: I see lots of similarities for uh, for me, and it, it's helpful for me to compare it in my mind. I mean, one thing that happens when you learn a foreign language is the first day, you know, it's just like you don't understand anything, right? <laughs> I remember the first day of Arabic class was just like okay, <laughs> and then you reach a point where you start to understand pieces. And then there's a point where you understand enough French or enough Arabic that you you can then learn more French and more Arabic. Like there's a point in French fluency where you can ask someone what something means in French and they can explain it to you in French, right? The same thing can happen in mathematics. If you're really comfortable coming out of elementary, uh, you're quick with your percentages, you know, okay, one half, 0.5, all of that is clear in your mind. When someone introduces this new idea of X or some new concept, positive and negative numbers, you have enough math background to add it on and to build from there. But if you're fuzzy on your elementary math, you know, it's kind of like me on the first day of Arabic, you don't have anything to hook onto. I remember not even being able to tell where the word started and stopped, right? So it's kind of the same feeling of being underwater and you can't get your footing underneath you. I wanted to add one other thing. Um, I know in elementary, we're we're pretty used to manipulatives and beans and things being hands-on. Now, some of that fades away in middle school just because it's not practical to keep modeling more complex concepts with beans, for instance. But you still want to be showing kids concepts in multiple ways. So, for instance, one thing that I do in my classes is I like to show um, equations with a table a graph have them create a situation and then have the equation so for instance let's say you have the equation 2x plus 3 a table of values where all the kids do is they write down different x values and then what the equation would be equal to that has been so helpful for so many kids to see it like that Uh, the graph is a visual representation so that helps another group of learners and then creating a situation typically first your course would sh- tell the kids a situation just give it to them but eventually if kids can come up with their own situation that matches a rep- a, a an equation that's when they're really going to understand it richly like okay i had $3 and i made $2 more every hour or something like that they'll really grasp those algebraic concepts and
1: i i presume what you want parents to do then is to look for curriculum that represents algebraic ideas in multiple ways, right? Because I know I wouldn't have the knowledge to just take something in a math book and say, oh, let me turn this into a graph for you. <laughs> let me turn this into a table for you. Right. <laughs> That's That would be uh, above my pay grade. But there are a more recent math programs understand this concept of multiple representation or, you know, just recap, last time, what was that progression of presentations that we need to go through as parents when kids
0: are learning a new concept? You start out with the concrete and... Then pictorial, then abstract. Yeah, concrete, pictorial, and then abstract. But yes, um, with what you said about choosing a good book, I think especially in middle school and high school, the book decision becomes so crucial because in elementary, I think many of us as parents can add on or take pieces. I know people who blend, but as you get into middle school and high school, I just don't know that that's very realistic. It would be very challenging. It takes a lot longer to think of a good example of some of these concepts, but as you're flipping through a text, you can see, oh look, they've got a table here, here's a graph, um, that type of thing,
1: yeah. Yeah, I kept switching on your sister, which really contributed to her confusion. Um, But let's move on, so what's the goal in high school? To be college ready, how far do kids have
0: to get, and in what order? Yeah, absolutely. So it'll depend where they want to land, but I'll just give you a progression with different, you know, um, different shoots at the end. So you can decide, you know, a lot of times kids decide during high school sort of which way they're leaning, but you do have to start with algebra. I definitely recommend algebra in eighth grade if you can get there, but algebra one is the starting point. Algebra one, we have that variable X and a key component of algebra one is linear equations or linear situations. So it just means that uh, something is increasing at the same rate every time, three dollars per hour. You know that type of situation. Um, the the line between Algebra One and Algebra Two is a bit blurry. Different textbooks or different classes divide it differently. But overall, from Algebra One into Algebra Two, you move from those linear situations I was talking about into quadratics, which are x squared, to just put it simply. Anytime you have an x squared in an equation or on a graph, the word we use for that are quadratics. And um, you're going to be factoring them, graphing them, making tables, doing all kinds of things, but they are more complex, right, than linear. Can you, can um, you give for- an example, though,
1: of what would be, in the real world, a situation where you'd need a quad- to use a quadratic equation?
0: Well, my favorite example when I introduced it was skydiving. Now, I do have to say, for anyone who's listening who's like a science nerd, I was simplifying the variables actually to make it work. But I would always start by saying, who says math can't save your life? And then we watched skydiving clips and we figured out when the skydiver would hit the ground or that type of thing. But an arc, a symmetrical arc, uh, is a shape in math called a parabola. And that's the shape that a quadratic makes when you graph it. Um, I kind of geek out over them because they're really cool and they're symmetrical. But (laughs) that's kind of like the, the big picture of that. And then as you move fully into algebra two, it's basically just a richer and more complex version of algebra one. You'll work with polynomials of a higher degree. So for instance, linear is just x, quadratics is x squared. Then you have x to the third, x to the fourth, x to the fifth. So that's what I mean when I say polynomials of a higher degree. And other kinds of functions, really what you're doing is modeling things in the world that are more and more complex, if I can kind of simplify it. So I love algebra two because I think you get to do more fun things. The graphs get really cool and beautiful. And it's a little more realistic than algebra one. Good. A lot of students will take geometry in the middle there. That's the study of shapes and their properties. Geometry has kind of become a bit less important since I was in school. It's a little hard to it's like... An ugly stepsister. Ex- yeah, it's kind of falling out of favor. Um, it's not as applied. It's a little more pure math. So I still think you should take it and enjoy it because it's beautiful and it's cool but it is one that I've told kids, if you're behind and you need to double up, you could do geometry over a summer, for instance. I wouldn't recommend that for Algebra 2. It's just way too much rich content. But yeah, it's the study of shapes and their properties. And a big thing in geometry is learning the art of classification and defining things mathematically. And a lot of kids in geometry develop the skill of just being precise. Mathematicians don't like ambiguity. So just learning how to really carefully used language is a big thing in geometry. Um, Trigonometry is just the study of triangles, so it's just sort of more specific. And a lot of times that gets blended into another course. It is really important. Trig has its own functions, cosine, sine, tangent. But a lot of times trigonometry either gets tacked on with a geometry course or it is folded into Algebra 2 or pre-calculus. So parents need to know where it is
1: in the program, right? Is this a... Is that sort of another compelling reason for using the same math program through high school? Because where they embed geometry and where they embed trigonometry might vary if
0: you switch programs and you might miss something important. That's an excellent point. I'm glad you made that. Yes, you need to know where it's coming from, like where it fit in. And uh, you're right, if you use the same program, they'll have that planned out. But I've even seen with kids in my co-op that they benefited from seeing it twice. So um, at our co-op, it was in the Algebra two course, but I was the geometry teacher and I love trigonometry. So I hit it pretty hard again. And I think that they, the kids said it was really helpful to kind of had two shots at it to really learn it well, because then when you get to pre-calculus, it's essential, it, it's crucial. Well, we'll and, unpack that. Yeah, absolutely. So pre-calculus, I love pre-calculus as a course because I view it as a bit of a capstone to everything I was just talking about. So you had your algebras, you had your geometry, it can feel a little bit disconnected. But in pre-calculus, our main goal is getting ready for calculus. But in order to do that, we kind of synthesize and make connections between all that other high school math. And a lot of kids, it clicks for them in a way that it maybe didn't before. It feels less isolated, and we start to really see connections between algebra two and geometry and the trigonometry f- functions and all of that. Um, and uh, precalculus oftentimes has statistics uh, folded into it, which is just a wonderful field of mathematics that a lot of kids can grasp more easily because it relates to data, and that's something they can you know, understand and see in the real world. Once you finish pre-calc, you've got some options. I strongly recommend calculus in high school if you're going to go into a science or a math type field in college. Uh, Even if you take it again in college, I just think to take it in high school (laughs) is just the right decision. If you're not thinking that, if you're going to be probably a humanities major, I would recommend maybe a college algebra course if you have like a community college you can go to or probability and statistics. Either one though is just gonna keep you from going into freshman year with kind of a math gap, which I don't think is helpful.
1: So you're saying don't just not do math the senior year, even if you have all the math credits in that you have as a requirement for whatever graduation or diploma program you might be following
0: right i think that's very painful because if you do that you're like okay i don't really care for math i've got my requirements and you take a full year off sometimes it's almost a year and a half till you fold in those summers and then you have a math requirement as a freshman it's just so long ago, and it, maybe it wasn't a strength for you to begin with. That does not tend to go well. Um, so a lot of students told me, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, I wish I had done something my senior year. And
1: almost everybody is going to take a college math placement test. So you need to, I just, all of four of you did. And I, right. I know, of course, we didn't do math very well. For your siblings, either you weren't the only person damaged, uh, and I, I just know that I just know that uh, one of your brothers failed that placement exam, and he right. he went in and argued. He said, yes, "I he know did. I'm better than this," which was he showed his SATs. Yes, yes, <laughs> but it was the gap. Uh, so one more oh. thing before we break: what's on the SAT then? What? How far do you have to get by the time you take the SAT in order to have the math that's going to be, you're going to be tested on there?
0: I'm so glad you asked me that because I think a lot of families are unaware of this. The SAT changed in 2016 and the math on it is more advanced, uh, in my opinion, than what it used to be. So there's lots of Algebra 2 on it now. And that includes um, some trigonometry, that includes some of those higher polynomials. So you definitely want to be, well, to be the most successful you can be on the SAT, you want to be finished with Algebra 2 when you take it.
1: Good. Well, great. What I want to talk about when we come back is, you know, get into some of the brass tacks, okay? Help parents figure out how to... uh teach kids math or work with the program that they've chosen to leverage it to the best possible outcomes. Hi, folks. This is Deborah. I want to tell you about Katie's elementary math curriculum, Exploring Creation with Mathematics. It's published by Apologia. I know this is a proud mama speaking but I think this math program will be a game changer for your family Katie showed a very early interest in math unfortunately that was not a strong suit of our homeschool and she pretty much had to figure out how to do math without much help from me so Katie knows firsthand what a challenge teaching math can be for homeschool parents it is her passion to fix that for you while inspiring your kids to love math the way that she does Her program is grounded in the latest math education research and a solid understanding of homeschool reality. Your kids will love the bright colors, the games, the hands-on activities, and science-based unit projects. You're gonna love the easy-to-follow step-by-step illustrated lessons, abundant reproducibles, and a wonderful answer key with parent-friendly teaching notes and images of student pages with answers filled in. You can find out more and download a sample at Apologia.com. Okay, Kate, here's where I want to go next. Uh, Last time we spent a while talking about conceptual understanding and how important that is. And conceptual understanding is kids having deep understanding of the key concepts in a subject area like addition or multiplication or algebra or American literature or biology in different realms. And we talked about how to teach to that. But another thing you mentioned last time that I want to circle back to is you said the second big goal we have in teaching mathematics or in learning mathematics is procedural fluency. So I think you need to help us make sure we understand what procedural fluency is, what you're referring to that, how to teach it, and why it's important. So
0: absolutely. one, two, three, go. <laughs> procedural fluency is being able to do math accurately and quickly. It's knowing your skills. Uh, it's the math facts. It's being able to subtract three-digit numbers, that type of thing. So it's just being able to actually do the math. Now, it's important because um, we have limited short-term memory. So if you go to learn a new math concept, but you're fuzzy on your previous skills, and either it takes you a long time to remember a fact, or you don't quite remember how to regroup or that type of thing, it holds you up. And it's actually, you know, it's it's because your brain has limits. So your brain can only hold so many pieces of information in short-term memory at a time. So if you don't know your prior knowledge well, it kind of like bumps the new knowledge out, so to speak. You don't have room to learn the new knowledge because you're trying to remember the old stuff. So that's why it's so important because just if I can give a concrete example, if you don't really know your multiplication facts, factoring quadratics in high school becomes really difficult because one of the things you have to do if you're looking at a quadratic, is think of what can I multiply to get the number 36. If that first step is you going, okay, one times 36, two, like if it's slow and you're struggling to retrieve the information, by the time you remember the factors, you will forget what you were supposed to do next in the problem with quadratics because your short-term memory is limited. So it's really it's really essential. If you don't have procedural fluency, it really limits your success in mathematics.
1: Yeah, if I could just recast it. So if it's like what we mean when we say we lose the plot, you know? Right. Uh, So a kid sitting down to a word problem that requires higher level mathematical thinking, but he can't just knock off the low-hanging fruit like okay i just need to simplify this equation you know first of all i need to set up the equation then i need to simple it simplify it by factoring it if he can't just do that sort of in an automated fashion he is now he's got to go back after he's factored and he's got to reread that word problem and start at the beginning again and he is just constantly losing his right. global yeah. understanding of what the task at hand is. And he's also getting stressed and fatigued by this cognitive load, which exactly. is maybe something else you want to mention.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's almost impossible. It's um It's setting up kids with more than what their brain can handle. And so um, I typically, when I would teach a high school concept, I would often go back and reinforce those earlier skills because I just knew that the kids wouldn't be able to be successful. So there was no point in jumping forward if they didn't have that previous knowledge.
1: All right. So anything that parents can do then to help with procedural fluency? I mean, how do we make that happen? How do we teach for that?
0: There's a lot of research, and I continue to be amazed by how well it works. I don't know if that sounds silly, but I, you know, I'm reading this research all the time and incorporating it in Apology of Math. But still, when I use some of these things when I'm teaching my second grader, it's just like, wow, it this really works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because research works. Research <laughs> works. Uh, you know, try it and you'll see what I mean. The the first one is spaced repetition. So researchers have found that when you're trying to move something from short-term memory to long-term memory, or when you're trying to really get information into your long-term memory, you should use spaced repetition, which just means that you're going to practice it repeatedly over time. And you need to take breaks in between. You need to sleep in between. It can't all be in one sitting. And this really, I mean, this is one of the ones that has amazed me um, I was working on subtraction facts with my son. We had two weeks set aside to memorize a certain group of facts. And day one, he might not know them at all. Day two, he's still you know, really struggling. And then day three, it starts to click. And we just keep doing it. We honestly only work on our facts for about five minutes, maybe 10 minutes if we're playing a really fun game, but we do it really consistently every day or three days a week. And it always clicks like that second week. Suddenly, it's really clicking, and he knows it quickly and automatically. And it's not stressful because it's right there. But it takes that time, that spacing out, to really get it.
1: Yeah, and you know um, that makes sense to me, Kate. Because one of the ways in which our brain functions is it consolidates learning during while we're sleeping. Okay, it's it's happening in the background. It's sort of like while we're in the process of engaging and learning and their kids doing his math with you uh we're not really consolidating and moving into long-term memory as the main operation that's taking place at that moment we're really working in short-term memory or in working memory at that time so what happens then when you give joseph a break and he gets to go outside or he gets to you know pause and he's just Daydreaming, or he actually takes a nap or he goes to sleep when he's not got that cognitive task going on where his attention is in full mode, then his brain takes that opportunity to grasp some of, not all of, but some of what he was learning that day and starts, you know, offloading some of that chunk back into long term memory, which we mentioned. In a much earlier episode is that one of the definitions of learning is information that's been moved from short-term or working memory into long-term memory.
0: And many of us, I mean, I think we know that this is the right way to learn math or to learn many subjects, but knowing the research has helped me commit to it because a lot of times it's more convenient as a teacher or as a student to do a long session of math instead of spacing it out. But I've started sharing this with my high school students at our co-op each year and explaining to them, you really need to do an hour a day over five days or over four days minimally. You can't cram it because this is how your brain works. And that has really helped them because then they know when they're looking at their schedule why they need to prioritize setting aside that chunk of time each day so that they can sleep. And like you said, their brain can make those connections when they're not focused on the mathematics.
1: So do you think like some kind of skill practice, skill and drill ought to be like a a routine, sort of like in sports, you always start with, okay, we're going to work on some of the, we're just going to practice layups for five, 10 minutes. Should there kind of be this constant routine of working on their math facts while they're in, in elementary
0: That's a great analogy. I mean, I like that idea of the sports team. And yes, I agree. You know, it's sort of like you're stretching before you do the practice or the drills, like we used to do the dribbling drills. Yeah, I think skills practice is the term I used for it in apology and math. But um, we set aside five to 10 minutes a day to do skills um, before we learn a new lesson. So if you want to separate it in your mind, What we're talking about right now is rehearsing something they already learned. You're just practicing something where the concept was already taught. You already learned what subtraction is, but we're just going through flashcards or we're playing a game, but we're not learning anything new. That should happen every day for five to ten minutes. And you don't need to make it 30 minutes like quick. It can be something really fun and elaborate or it can be something super simple. Sometimes I just print off a quick worksheet and he just connects things. You know, and it draws lines and we're done. But putting it in front of him and then learning a new lesson or a new concept that's different that that happens in a different way.
1: Yeah. So just to to tie the knot here, what we're hoping kids gain from this routine practice every day is automation. Yes. Because so I don't think I ever grasped that when I was homeschooling that wait we gotta have our math facts mastered, even decimals, percentages, and fractions, that just has to be automated before we try algebra. I, I think I just thought, okay, if they take a test and I give them as much time as they want, they're going to get most of the problems right. That wasn't sufficient. They, You kids had not really gotten the procedural fluency that you're
0: talking about. Right, and when you talk about automation, that helps us all grasp why you need the time for it right? Because no one is going to start with something um, like converting between decimals and percentages and be automatic. That doesn't even make sense. When you first learn it, you have to draw pictures and act things out and think it through. And it's totally appropriate for your child to be thinking and pausing before they answer. But over time, at some point, it should become mastered and automatic where they don't have to pause and think or act it out or draw a picture they just know it that's what sort of like the goal here
1: i just want to make sure parents understand you you don't just command your kids to get faster like do it faster do it faster like speed is the byproduct of practice and i think if kids are needing to ponder and take time and draw pictures we don't want to feel like we should pressure them to move on from that
0: if they still need it that's an excellent point yes it's the byproduct and it should never be forced i mean there's even research that shows that you know teaching for speed at the wrong point is detrimental because for kids to have a rich grasp of a concept the conceptual understanding that we've talked about It takes them thought and reflection. So if you try to get to speed too quickly, you aren't letting kids make those connections and think through the relationship. But yes, over time, as they're practicing it, they will become faster. Yes.
1: Yeah, there's a good book called Thinking Slow and Fast. And the point of the book is that there is some tasks that require slow thinking and some tasks that require fast thinking. So just wanna leave parents with that idea that in learning there is slow and fast thinking and both of them are necessary. Okay, so not just spaced repetition, what else uh, can we do then to really help improve procedural fluency?
0: Well, another piece of research that really helped me and, and surprised me was some research on retrieval So retrieval is the act of kind of going in your brain and trying to find a piece of information. So right now, if I say to you, what is seven times eight? What is the product of seven and eight? And you pause and you think about it, you're trying to retrieve that product. And whether you get, oh, it's 56, or you kind of get muddled and you can't quite remember, the process of retrieving the information Uh, builds a stronger, a stronger neural pathway. So having kids practice facts, even just questioning them, if they get it wrong, but then you, you tell them the right answer, that process is still leading to learning. So this is one reason why um, I've used reference sheets or cheat sheets is what some people are used to calling them with kids. And it's been really effective because I'll ask them a question and just have them try to answer it before flipping over the cheat sheet or the reference sheet that has the answer. And if they try to think of it before they look, they're still learning and they're still um, strengthening that neural pathway. Retrieval is like clutch for learning, Kate. In
1: any scenario, for example, this is why multiple choice is not a really good assessment of student understanding. It's much better if they have to generate produce the answer without any uh, clues because that's going to force them to, you know, to think through, okay, how do I solve this? And another Mm -hmm. thing too, just before we move on is it's really good to open the lesson, whether it's math or science or literature, like, hey, what did we talk about yesterday? And have the kid have to bring to mind whatever was learned yesterday. And you can coach your child through that. Don't give him the answers or don't tell him. Like when we're telling kids stuff, they're not learning. Making them answer questions, sort of the Socratic method, is really um, promoting what you taught. It's strengthening neural pathways. I mean, you could take an MRI at the beginning of the school year and then take an MRI at the end of the school year if you could afford it. and you would actually see the synapses And the neural connections have thickened in your child's brain. And that is actually a measure of learning that's taken place.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, one more, if I'll just give one other one, is chunking. So um, this really helps with learning facts or learning a large group of information. You always want to give kids a group uh, that's related, that's what I'm referring to say a chunk of information, and build from there rather than giving them a big pile. So um, a specific, informa- uh, specific example. When I teach multiplication facts, we learn them in families, and we start with the easiest ones. So the twos multiplication facts are pretty quick for kids. A lot of kids already know them because they're doubles. They're just kind of fun. So we do twos, fives, and tens. And just practice those as a chunk until your child really knows them. And then add in threes and fours. And if a child can't figure out a threes fact, they can sync up to it from a twos. You know what I mean? You can build on, but you want to do that with everything with all the different um, skills you're practicing if you're working on percentages you would start with the benchmarks 0 percent 25 percent 50 percent you know, start with the easy ones and then start adding in ones that are a little more complex that one uh, that's been so helpful for me for just making it feel more manageable for kids and students because the amount of information that they see they need to practice or learn just doesn't stress them out to the same level, and then you add a layer, and you add a layer instead of just like here, you need to learn all this.
1: Yeah, that's uh, I think that's a wonderful um, concept or strategy to really leverage in mathematics because unlike many other subjects, as you said earlier, mathematicians don't like ambiguity, and so math is a very elegant. Uh, language. There's a lot of patterns, as I learned from you (laughs) when you were younger. And so there are a lot of connections that should be obvious and natural for parents to make when they're teaching mathematic concepts, that everything is sort of related and connected to previously learned knowledge in some kind of meaningful way that we can make sure that we're making for our kids.
0: Yeah, since a lot of times the connections our kids make are different than what we would make. So, um, you know, I had a student who would do multiplication facts from the square numbers. If you said six times seven, they did six times six and then went up. And I find this like endlessly fascinating. My son does, his connections are all different than mine. We don't do problems the same way. But as long as you are making those connections, you're going to grasp it. And then it's kind of your math personality, which connections you see first. Um, That's just part of how we're all made differently.
1: Great. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, Kate, um, I just want you to wrap up with ways to make math fun and meaningful and all the pragmatic practical tips that you haven't had a chance to mention yet. Let's, let's leave parents with those. Great.
0: The Ultimate Homeschool Planner is more than just a place to record your school days. It's a planning system thoughtfully designed around St. Augustine's admonition, order brings peace. With weekly reminders to note God's faithfulness in your homeschool, the Ultimate Homeschool Planner will help you keep a God-centered focus. Each August, I use the yearly planning pages to map out the big picture for our upcoming school year. I prayerfully draft academic and character goals for each of my kids. From there, the layout guides me in planning our months, weeks, and days, so I make sure we don't miss our top priorities. There is room to list prayer requests, Bible plans, and even pages to record memorable moments and evidence of grace. My favorite item is the weekly hospitality outreach box because it keeps me from getting too inwardly focused. If you are looking for a planner that will guide you towards your long-term goals while maintaining your flexibility and freedom, then this is the planner for you. Each Ultimate Homeschool Planner has 52 weeks and can accommodate planning for up to six children in multiple subject areas. Grab a planner in your favorite color at Apologia.com today.
1: Things have been kind of heavy here, Kate. So let's uh, let's uh, lighten it up and give parents some tips for finding joy in mathematics f- and how we can lighten it, the mood that surrounds doing math in a homeschool context.
0: Yeah, even so far, I've just been talking about how important it all is, <laughs> right? But math should be fun. It's really important for math to be fun. And I think math is fun. Um, one thing... I think it's really important to keep in mind as parents is that if kids have negative emotions surrounding mathematics, um, anxiety or anger, it makes it really difficult for them to learn mathematics. But if you can take some time and some resources to really focus on showing them the beauty and the excitement and the patterns and to make math fun, uh, it's not just great because then they're happier, but it prepares their mind to learn better and it really pays off in the long run. So for instance, earlier we were talking about practicing skills every day for five to 10 minutes. That will get old really quickly if it's just you know worksheet after worksheet and the worksheets aren't colorful and it's just straight up math facts. But even something as simple as doing a worksheet where the answers put... Are filling in a code, you know, that makes a big difference because the kid sees the paper when they get up and they're like, "Oh, I want to do this. I want to figure out the code." They bring those positive emotions to the math facts. Um, at our house, a really big thing is games. I love math games, but not all math games are created equally. Um, I love math games where. You're practicing math knowledge, but also there's some strategy involved and some good thinking. And so I've curated some great games as I found them. Um, You know, lots of them are in Apology of Math, but also on my social media, I'm always posting the ones that we're playing. Uh, An example of this would be Fishing for Tens. So when we practice our addition facts we play a game very similar to Go Fish, except you make 10 instead of a match. So like a seven and a three. It's really fun. Uh, I've had, my kids have gotten very creative and they've tried to combine like a six, a three and a one and say that that's a match, things like that. But do you see how that like is enriching their, it's enriching their math knowledge, but they're just trying to win. They're not even really thinking about, oh, I'm doing math right now. So I definitely think, um, Adding fun and adding just some of that flavor makes a huge difference for kids. You know,
1: uh, we've we've been really transparent about what a flop math was at our house. <laughs> um, I would have to say it, the formal math was a flop, but why I think my four kids ended up still being really good at math and three of the four having math-related degrees, is your dad had you guys playing cards and strategy games really young. (laughs) Yeah, but I think playing cards, like playing spades, for example, where you had to keep track of your numbers, I just think that contributed to you do you both you all develop
0: some sort of conceptual understanding of mathematics
1: through those games
0: sure i mean lots of games have math involved in them and have a lot of probability embedded in them and strategic thinking is is so crucial in math just being able to plan ahead and think that way yes absolutely
1: well, and the other thing that happened which was serendipitous i mean it's or coincidental though I would say it was sovereign and providential, um, is that a a friend of ours started Math Club, right? Right. right. And invited you to join, like she was a member of our co-op. Just kind of unpack that for folks.
0: Sure, yeah. We were in Math Club at co-op. We did, well, I don't know about my siblings, so I'll just speak for myself. Uh, I just remember it was an elective and we did different math games like set i'm sure there's some people listening uh, who are familiar with set um we did a game called petals around the rose where the whole point of the game is you had to figure out the rules (laughs) and so you had to think really mathematically for like what was eliminating and what wasn't Uh, it was actually pretty deep game Um, we also learned about the history of math and did projects on different mathematicians I think it felt very different to me than my formal math class because we weren't graded. uh, There weren't tests. There wasn't any kind of sense of, like, pressure. It was all just sort of fun. Like, we're just doing this because it's cool. (laughs) And so then it showed you this side of math uh, that felt different. And then I was able to take some of those ideas back um, into my formal math class. And you're doing something
1: similar now, too. Don't you get the neighborhood kids together for math club or something like that?
0: Yeah, I host math days, uh, whenever I can. So the necessity of it, like how it started is I needed to try out things for apology of math. And I do have families that try the whole, um, program, but I have certain projects that I just want to like, see how lots of different kids feel about them. So, um, I like, Several times a year I host a math day and I pick a theme. I think the last the last one I did was fractions. There's always food that's like really key. Um, so we learn fractions by cutting up oranges and I think we cut up a pizza. Um, but then we play games and then we do a couple different activities. I keep it really light. It normally happens in the summer. So I'm always committing to the parents that it's not going to be too intense. And it, I create multiple entry points for kids so like if a kid doesn't know as much about fractions i just kind of give them a reference sheet so they could still play the game it ends up being a ton of fun um but it does also help the parents have told me it really helps not not just with math knowledge but a lot of kids have come to math day and realized oh, like, math can be different than I thought. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm really excited about it. I get really, like, excited for math day. And then I think um, it sort of shows them, like, oh, math is different than I thought it was.
1: Yeah. And for the parents out there who are like, okay, I don't know. Nobody's offering that where I live. I think this is a big part of Our duty as homeschool parents is to keep our eyes open for opportunities to have a prayer list, to ask the Lord to show up and be faithful and surprise us with his provision. And so I think you just need to make connection with other homeschoolers and what gift do you have to offer to the homeschool community that you can start organizing? I had a writing club and Mm -hmm. here's Katie, you have a math day. Like we just need to look for those people. Or if somebody you know, offers to right. do something that's math related, like sees it and realize, wait, this is just as important as us finishing this textbook. In fact, it may be more important than finishing the textbook because it's gonna really help my kid to have positive view of mathematics and have increased sense of success with math. Oh, I can use math for things that I find fun and meaningful.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to fake passion. Like if you're not excited about something uh, yourself, it's really hard to teach it passionately. But as homeschool parents, if we don't do what you were just talking about, mom, if we don't network or bring in those people, we'll end up limiting our kids by our own strengths and weaknesses, or our own preferences, I guess is a better phrase for it. And I just you know, a goal is to be open to what God has for my kids and not just what my preferences are. And so I think we just have to connect, you know, I can bring math to the table who loves history or who's like really amazing with crafts or music. And uh, in that teamwork, we end up with the best possible homeschool programs. That's all we have for you today. You can find my mom, Dr. Deborah Bell, at com, And
1: you can find Catherine on Facebook at Catherine M. Gomes or on Instagram as Homeschool Math Mom. Her math books and my homeschool planners are
0: available at Apologia.com. If you have a moment, please review our podcast wherever you like to listen to podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. It makes a big difference in other homeschoolers finding us. Thanks for joining us, and remember, you've got
1: this.